Ask the Expert. We have Dr. Martin Hessner along with Pinar Sargent. Dr. Hessner is in the Medical College of Wisconsin and Dr. Sargent is down in Florida um, at Wellington uh, University Regional Medical Center. So I'll just give a little bio on both of them so you know that and then uh, they'll walk you through some of the work they've initiating and we can um, have questions at the end. So uh, Dr. Hessner, he's a tenured professor with the Division of Endocrinology and director of the Max McGee Research Center for Type 1 Diabetes at the Medical College of Wisconsin. The goal of this McGee Center is to develop an understanding of the mechanisms that underlie T1D pathogenesis, such as the, that preventative uh, strategies and cures uh, can be developed. The McGee Center's current area of focus uh, includes understanding the genetic and environmental contributors that govern T1D pathogenesis, defining the immunological processes that underlie autoimmunity against the insulin-producing beta cells, and identifying T1D subtypes that differ by disease progression rates or responsiveness to therapeutic intervention. Welcome, Dr. Hessner. Um, and Pinar Sargent, MD, she completed medical school at the Akhabadam University School of Medicine 2018 in Istanbul, Turkey. After graduation, she worked at the Medical Biology Laboratory and Bone Marrow Bank at uh, Instant, uh, Istanbul University as a volunteer researcher. And, and um, to further her developing interest in endocrinology, she began working at Max McGee Diabetes Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin in 2020, where she spent two years doing research in type 1 diabetes, investigating the effects of diet and probiotics on T1D onset using diabetes-prone bio breeding or BB rats. She then started the internal medicine residency at Wellington Regional Medical Center last June, and she has uh, much interest uh, to pursue her career in endocrinology in the future. So welcome. Um, it's great to have you here today. And just to sort of set the stage, which what brought you to L plantarum um, supplementation? Uh, we had a little bit of uh, discussion about this off camera, and I wondered if you could just go to sketch it out for us. Yes, uh, so we, we were working uh, in collaboration with a cardiologist here, Mike Widlansky, who found that uh, L-plantarum would reduce systemic inflammation in his uh, men with coronary artery disease. And so that's kind of what put us onto, onto L-plantarum. And so I'll mention uh, later on that we're, you know, we're, we're studying both L-plantarum and a multi-strain probiotic called VSL3. So what I aim to do is, is give you some background that kind of uh, explains how we ended up with uh, Dr. Sargent's project, looking at uh, how probiotic might affect uh, the beta cell directly. So with that, thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the invitation. And um, I guess we'll get started. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's go. So um, in terms of uh, general background, I think everybody's aware that type 1 diabetes is a T-cell-mediated autoimmune disease, targets the pancreatic beta cells, results in insulin dependence, um, and also in many patients, you know, secondary vascular complications. Uh, we also know it's a complex disease. There's now more than 60 associated genetic loci. Uh, the biggest uh, genetic risk is the class 2 MHC. This is true for uh, humans. It's also true for the nod mouse, and it's also true for the BB rat. In all cases, it's a class 2 uh, molecule. In the case of humans, it's HLA-DR3 and HLA-DR4 haplotypes. Um, there's been a number of environmental factors implicated in, in type 1 diabetes risk. 
Uh, viruses have long been implicated as a trigger, and I think there's reasonable evidence uh, for uh, uh, enteroviruses being a, a trigger of type 1. And more recently, the microbiome has emerged as, as an important variable. What's important to keep in mind is that the incidence of type 1 diabetes has doubled over the last 20 years. And presently, uh, there's a, more than 1.4 million Americans that live with type 1. Over the last 50 years, there's been some important um, epidemiological changes. Uh, the first is that the age of onset is getting younger. And the other thing that's happening, uh, though most patients are still DR3, DR4, the proportion of new cases that carry these high-risk HLA haplotypes has also decreased. And so these changes are, are too rapid to be based in genetics and are likely being driven by increased environmental pressure. So in animal models, we've known for a long time um, that changing the diet um, or, or giving probiotics can influence the disease course, uh, preventing or delaying onset of diabetes in, in, in BB rats and in not mice. In humans, gut barrier dysfunction, altered gut uh, ultrastructure and permeability, inflammation of the duodenal mucosa and dysbiosis are associated with, with, uh, with diabetes in humans. There are certainly differences that have been reported in the intestinal microbiome between type 1 patients and unrelated controls, and there's also been changes reported in the microbiome that occur during type 1 diabetes pathogenesis, in other words, progression. And so these include uh, decreases in microbial community diversity, decreases in the final uh, firmicutes, uh, and of course, these are the lactic acid. This includes the lactic acid fermenting bacteria uh, like lactobacilli. There's reductions in fiber fermenting short chain fatty acid producing bacteria. Um, and what, we're, what we've been focusing on a lot is, is the production or the ability to measure uh, propionate or butyrate. And these are important short chain fatty acids in that uh, they act directly on innate cells, monocytes, uh, to uh, basically uh, in, in an anti-inflammatory anti capacity these short-chain fatty acids also work on uh, regulatory T cells, promoting their function and differentiation. So there's been a couple of interesting reports uh, regarding a role for the microbiome in, in type 1 path, uh, pathogenesis. One coming from Teddy, showing that in subjects with high genetic risk, probiotics during the neonatal period uh, was associated with a reduced development of anti-beta cell autoimmunity during the first decade of life. There's been a couple of papers looking at kids that have been born by C-section, and it's been found that uh, C-section is a risk factor, for, risk factor for developing type 1, and this risk can be increased uh, through the use early in life of broad-spectrum antibiotics. And so the idea here is that uh, normal vaginal birth uh, will result in better and more proper seeding of the microbiome than basically a delivery you know, by C-section where the initial seeding is gonna be bacteria from the skin. So uh, the, the rise in type one incidence certainly coincides with environmental changes that have likely altered the gut microbiome. This includes decreased breastfeeding, increased antibiotic usage, and of course, popularity of the highly processed, high gluten uh, Western diet. So uh, by, by with the advent of, of uh, 16F sequencing and, and other sequencing approaches, the study of the microbiome, 
it's uh, pretty well established now that the gut flora of modern humans is, is quite distinct from West African hunter-gatherers and other you know, non-advanced populations, um, as well as ancient humans like Utsi the Iceman, uh, who is found in the Alps, as, and also our, our closest relatives, the great apes. And how we differ from these, these other microbiomes is that we possess fewer fiber-fermenting taxa that produce high levels of short-chain fatty acids. And this is nicely shown by a report uh, by Henrik et al., published in 2018 in Hemisphere, where they basically did a meta-analysis looking at infant fecal pH in healthy breastfed infants over the last 100 years. And as you can see, there's been a steady increase in the pH uh, over this period of time. So this, uh, together, these things support the idea that our modern microbiome likely promotes increased gut permeability, uh, increased microbial antigen exposure, and system, increased systemic inflammation. And so what I'm gonna say next in this next slide is a little bit of a nuance. And so if you think about it, these changes would have the biggest impact on people who have inherited hyper-responsiveness to microbial antigens. And so people who are hyper-responsive to innate stimuli. And this is indeed what we found in type one families. And so what we have discovered, and we're getting ready to uh, publish a paper on our studies of monocytes in type one patients and type one families. But what we see is that variation in non-HLA genes may render the immune system hyper-responsive to bacterial antigens, not only in type one patients, but type one families. And so really what we did here is we looked at uh, negatively selected monocytes from four groups. Uh, these were negatively selected monocytes from cryopreserved PBMCs from our biobank. We have four major groups, unrelated healthy controls, abbreviated UHC, low-risk SIBs, so these are antibody-negative healthy SIBs of type 1 patients. Um, so just they're, they're, these are normal healthy kids, antibody-negative. High-risk HLA SIBs, again, antibody-negative healthy kids. And so we have basically related and unrelated controls with and without high-risk HLA. And our fourth group is nuance at type 1s. And as you can see here, uh, what we did is we, we, we took monocytes, put them in culture overnight, they were stimulated with endotoxin. And you can see that um, after 24 hours of stimulation, the type one family members liberate high levels of IL-1 beta. This is on log scale. So the difference is roughly 10, more than tenfold. Um, and we see similar results for IL-6 and TNF-alpha. Again, this, this, uh, this is a familial phenotype. It's independent of the HLA. And it's consistent with a couple of other reports that actually go back quite a ways in the literature. So similar studies were done way back in the 90s uh, using PBMCs and a more recent study looked at this in, in DCs from, from first degree relatives. So um, we've also used a different approach to study inflammation in context of type one progression and in our studies of, of uh, probiotics. And this is called serum or plasma-induced transcription. And so this is a very sensitive and comprehensive method that we've used over the last 15 years or so to measure changes in systemic inflammation. And it works as follows. We take PBMCs we, from a healthy, well-characterized, healthy subject. Um, and so we buy these from a company. 
Um, and we plate them out and we challenge them with plasma or serum of the person we want to test. And after a nine-hour co-culture, we extract the RNA, we hybridize this to an Affymetrix gene chip, which measures about 50,000 transcripts and transcript variants. And then we analyze the data, uh, basically looking at the difference between uh, regulated transcripts in our test and control cultures. So we find that this is much more sensitive than a multiplex ELISA. And the other thing that it does is it captures combinatorial activity. Um, and so, and that's not only a protein, but as of non-protein mediators as well, things like endotoxin. Um, and so we, we follow these studies up with pathway analyses, as well as, you know, confirmatory laboratory studies. And really in the end, what we do is we interpret these signatures in terms of inflammatory versus regulatory activity. Um, the other thing I should point out is uh, it's remarkably disease specific. Um, so we look at different diseases, we see different fingerprints. So this is one of our very first experiments from way back in 2008, where we looked at 47 new onset type ones and 44 unrelated healthy controls. And what we see here in type one patients is a signature that's very consistent with a response to microbial antigens. It's partially IL-1 dependent. It also includes other chemokines and cytokines as well as innate immune receptors. But the really exciting thing that we saw in that first paper is that if we look at progressors um, and we look at individuals during the pre-onset period, we see this crescendo in the signature in the lead up to type 1 diabetes onset. Just as I showed you with the monocyte studies, um, related SIBs, whether they're high risk or low risk, do not look like unrelated healthy controls. They're actually intermediate. Um, and so they do also exhibit a heightened inflammatory state relative to unrelated healthy controls. So um, this is a, just a quick slide to give you an idea of what we're doing. Um, so what we've developed is uh, what we call a composite inflammatory index. And so our human signature has 1,374 key genes in it that we like to, that we like to look at. And what we can do to kind of lump this data together and summarize, you know, these 1,300 transcripts as a single value is we create a, what's really a composite ratio where we look at the mean signal intensity of the inflammatory genes and divide it by the mean signal intensity of the regulatory genes to get our composite inflammatory index. What this allows us to do now is to quantitatively track changes over time. Um, so in progression or non-progression or before and after probiotic intervention. And so uh, bottom line is high scores reflect greater inflammatory bias, low scores reflect greater regulatory bias. And of course, we can take this inflammatory index and we can do regression analyses with whatever metric we care to. So here's another type one progressor. This one's a little bit different than the one I just showed you in that instead of huge increases in inflammation, what we see in this patient is a falling away of regulation. But the net result is the same. The inflammatory index has a positive slope over time. In this particular patient, there's high inflammation prior to seroconversion. We've always wondered, you know, in cases like this, is this due to the, the, the inciting event, the uh, viral infection perhaps? Um, and the other, one of the other metrics we often look at is, is the abundance of regulatory T cells. And in progressors, we really do not see an increase in regulatory T cells, activated regulatory T cells over time. 
this very much differs with um, the brothers and sisters of our type one patients. What we see there is the exact opposite. The inflammatory index has a robust negative slope um, and the activated Tregs have significant reg regressions over time. So just, a, just an aside, when we started all this biobanking, we had always thought that um, the progressors would be the most interesting ones. Um, really, as it's turned out, um, the non-progressors are quite interesting as well. And this is why. Um, the picture that we've kind of developed is that in non-progressors, especially high-risk SIBs with high-risk HOA, there's temporal induction of immunoregulation. Um, and so this is how we depict this, that there's this underlying inflammatory state uh, that's genetically controlled. We believe it's environmentally regulated. But as these kids get older, uh, immunoregulation, counterregulation happens with expansion of, of, of uh, activated Tregs. And you'll notice here that the baseline, you know, is going down over time. And we think this results in a decreased susceptibility to viral triggering of type 1. And so this model, we think, may explain the juvenile nature of, of type 1 diabetes. So it's very interesting that the BBDR rat, which stands for, you know, biobreeding diabetes resistant rat, this is a little bit different model than the one Dr. Sargent will be talking about in a few minutes. This rat is not spontaneously diabetic, but diabetes can be triggered in this animal with, uh, with uh, an infection early in life with Killam's rat virus, which is a parvovirus. Cytomegalovirus also works. And so what I'm showing you here is multiplex cytokine analysis. And the cytokine analysis and the plasma-induced signatures are similar in that when the animals are young, they're really hot. And as they get older, they counter-regulate and become more immunoregulated with age. Interestingly, viral triggering, the viral triggering protocols that are used work best when the animals are young. And it becomes progressively more difficult to induce diabetes in them the older they get. So um, other MHC rat strains, other MHC matched rat strains that don't exhibit uh, diabetes susceptibility lack this underlying state, uh, this underlying inflammatory state. And one of the things that we've discovered is that if we alter the GI microbiome with either diet or probiotics, we can normalize this to varying degrees. And so uh, the question we had is, well, can you do the same thing in SIBs of, of type one patients? Can you, can you cool them off with a probiotic? And so we published this paper uh, last year. And what we had done is we actually did a pilot study uh, using VSL3. VSL3 is a multi-strain probiotic. It, it, it includes, uh, um, uh, uh, I think, eight strains in total, uh, several species of bifidobacterium, several species of lactobacillus, including lactobacillus plantarum, and strep thermopheles. So in IBD, uh, VSL3 is known to reduce inflammation. It's known to uh, improve intestinal barrier function, as well as overall disease management. Interestingly, and we've known this for almost 20 years, um, that in female nod mice, VSL3 uh, does promote immunoregulation, and it will prevent uh, type 1 diabetes in the nod mouse. So 
Our study was a six week single arm open label uh, pilot study. And the main question here was, can VSL3 reduce familial inflammation in 25 unaffected SIBs? And so what we observed, uh, first of all, was no adverse events, which was good. And, and patients uh, didn't mind it too much, or I should say the participants didn't mind it too much. There was high adherence. We saw uh, from 16S stool uh, sequencing, we saw increases in short chain fatty acid producers, uh, namely uh, lacrose, lac, E. We saw increases in plasma butyrate. Using our inflammatory index, we saw decreases in systemic inflammation. We also did uh, multiplex cytokine analysis where we saw reduction, significant reductions in IL-12, P40, IL-13, IL-15, 18, CCL2, and CCL24. We did not see uh, increases in activated Tregs, but we did see uh, lowering of the memory to naive CD4 ratio, which is another sign of reduced systemic inflammation. So our conclusions here was is that the study uh, suggested that probiotic supplement, supplementation lowers inflammation and may modify uh, type 1 diabetes susceptibility. So we've altered our model a little bit. Um, and so this is going back to the epidemiology studies. We think you know, our modern uh, microbiome is not so good, uh, has, is much more pro-inflammatory and impairs the rate at which, and perhaps the robustness of this temporal induction of regulation um, and so the question is, if we use probiotics, can we make things more like the way they used to be with our historic microbiome and, and get more rapid, more robust induction of this, this regulated state to override the underlying familial inflammation? So our big questions going forward are, you know, could modulation of the gut microbiome mitigate risk prior to triggering? Um, could it prolong persistence of insulin secretion in new onset patients? Could it prolong the honeymoon? Um, or could it reduce the risk of complications um, in established type ones? So right now what we're doing is we're, two, we're conducting two different uh, studies where we're using either of the single strain L-plantarum as a probiotic uh, during in, in basically in new onset type ones. And we're comparing, uh, comparing that to VSL3. So of course, you know, we can't get um, islets from, from these study participants. And so uh, Dr. Sargent's project focused on what effect does L-plantarum have on beta cells uh, in, in the, in the biobreeding rat model. And so with that, I will uh, turn it over to Dr. Sargent. Fantastic. Yeah, very interesting. And it, um, you know, the, that gap is there, you know, this whole idea that people have been talking about is a multi-drug use in the um, extension of the remission, I guess, prior to onset of type one. Now we've got teplizumab that's been FDA approved and um, perhaps there's room for some kind of combinatorial therapy with, you know, these kinds of um, probiotics. Um, did you want to share your screen? Um, are you, can you see my screen? Uh, I think so, yes. yes. I would like to thank you to Dr. Hessner for the great summary of the background work that led to our current project. So before our uh, research began, we started with a question 
whether the gluten-free diet and uh, probiotics can impact diabetes onset and better cell function. And if they do, is this combined effect is superior to either one alone. Um, in our study, we used a diabetes-prone, or as I'm going to refer in this presentation, DP rats. These rats are a model of type 1 diabetes, and they develop di diabetes spontaneously at around age 65 days. Uh, they are lymphopenic and they, uh, because they lack a GMAP5 gene, and our control rats were afflictive uh, rats. They um, they have similar genetic background with, D with DP rats. Uh, they, they both uh, matched for MC, MHC2 and GMAP5 deficiency, and they're both lymphopenic, but afflictive rats, they don't develop diabetes. And uh, we had five different groups based on different diets. Uh, they were, the rats were weaned onto either gluten-containing, uh, no, uh, gluten-containing normal cereal diet, ND, with or without lactobacillus plantarum or LP, or hydrolyzed casein um, diet, which is a gluten-free diet, HCD, or, uh, and with or without um, LP. And afflictive control as they were only weaned on to normal diet. Uh, why did we choose LP? Uh, LP is, is a non-probiotic uh, strain with non-anti-inflammatory effects. It, it, the studies uh, show that there is a positive effect on intestinal mucosa, and it is uh, proven that the, this particular strain is able to colonize human intestinal mucosa uh, when it's, when it's uh, orally administered, and also it creates an uh, environment that supports the growth of other beneficial bacteria in the gut. Our first experiment is the survival experiment. Uh, we uh, checked the uh, blood glucose of the rats uh, uh, since day one until the uh, age they developed diabetes. And in this experiment, uh, the, uh, we showed that the ACD and LP group, as you can see in this uh, black, black line, in this figure, uh, this uh, group had overall the best diabetes-free survival. And... Um, 25% uh, of these rats, they did not develop diabetes at the end of the study. And this uh, red line represents only the ACD group. And there's a significant difference between ACDLP and ACD groups. Then we um, collected stool sample from uh, today's old rats for 16S-RRNA gene sequencing. And uh, we uh, found, uh, comparing these two ACDLP, ACD groups, Bifida bacterium, uh, which is a short-chain fatty acid producer, was significantly enriched in the ACDLP group. Uh, concordant with the human data, prolonged survival in ACDLP rats was associated with increased beta diversity, increased pharmacopoeia ratios, and enriched bifidobacteria sea and clostridialis taxa that are also short-chain fatty acid producers. Then we measured the plasma short-chain fatty acid levels uh, in uh, our rat groups, and uh, we found that the butyrate and propionate had overall um, highest in the ACDLP group compared to DP, uh, other DP groups, and their levels were uh, the closest to the levels in the FLIP-LIP control rats. Uh, so um, the other studies, uh, for example, Vent et al., they 
suggested in their study that short-chain fatty acids improve immune state by reducing pathogenic cells and increasing regulatory type cells. So here I will briefly describe the endoplasmic reticulum stress and unfolded protein response mechanism. Uh, when the misfolded proteins overwhelm the ER capacity, BIP, which is a chaperone, disassociates from ERE1 alpha perkin ATF6, causing an, um, act, uh, causing an activation of signaling pathways as a, a compensatory response to over, overwhelm ER stress. And uh, this unfolded protein response mechanism is composed of three main branches, as you can see in this figure. And these um, pathways can lead to either apoptosis or um, uh, adaptation of the cell. So here we conducted pancreatic islet transcriptome analysis using FE metrics. And um, the, uh, we uh, used uh, rats 40 days of age. This is the age, the prior and they uh, pri prior to the age they develop insulitis and we use six to eight rats per group and we identified uh, more than 5,000 um, uh, trans uh, transcripts and uh, major themes we identified in this pathway analysis were uh, e related to ER stress, UPR and unfolded protein response and also uh, glutata uh, antioxidative defense response. And um, so in beta, beta cells, inflammation disrupts ER homeostasis, promotes accumulate, accumulation of unfolded or misfolded proteins, and uh, triggers the unfolded protein response. And this response mechanism has multiple pathways to prom promote recovery and survival by arresting translational to translation to reduce ER input, increase, uh, increasing chaperone expression to enhance protein folding, and increase uh, antioxidative defense responses, increasing ER-associated protein degradation, or ERAT, and increase uh, microautophagy leading to degradation. Um, here we showed uh, differentially expressed genes that we grouped based on their function and the expression levels of a, a gene among the five study groups that were shown in the heat map in colors. The brightest red represents the highest expression level and the brightest green represents the lowest expression levels. Uh, we detected an increase in the ACDLP group relative to the other groups in the expression of the genes involved in the protein processing, chaperones that ensures that the protein to be folded properly, and ERAT, uh, which is a protein degradation pathway, that helps with recognizing and regrading the misfolded proteins by proteasome. And uh, in the ACD group, uh, the genes that were related to autophagy and cell fate were uh, higher compared to the ACDLP groups. So then uh, further we uh, uh, co-localize uh, co the proteins in the islet levels, and we use immunofluorescent staining, uh, and we stained a red pancreas tissue together with insulin uh, to define the um, borders of the beta cells and to uh, measure the uh, signal that the antibodies express. And we also use DAPI uh, to, uh, as a nuclear stain to stain all the cells in blue. And in our images, uh, the, uh, our target antibodies uh, are shown in red and the insulin antibodies shown in green. 
so our, uh, one of our target proteins was OS9. It, uh, it's a protein that in, uh, encodes a protein that delivers misfolded or unfolded proteins to uh, this ERAD complex. It's a marker of ERAD activity, and it was high, highest in the ACDLP group. Uh, then we uh, stained Taleb. Uh, it, it is an... Um, it, it is an um, important protein for autophagic process. Uh, it has role in endosome lysosome fusion during this uh, autophagy process. And it was highest in the ACD group. And then we uh, stained EIF4G1. Uh, it uh, regulates beta cell function and has a role in insulin biosynthesis. It was found highest in the ACD-LP group. So uh, we asked, the, uh, as we found that there was a shift between ERAD and autophagy among our groups, especially between ACD and ACDLP groups, we asked the question uh, that, um, is this shift bit driven by short-chain fatty acids? And to answer that question, we used rat insulinoma cells and uh, we cultured these green cells, starting with a media lacking short-chain fatty acids until up to the level we measured in the plasma of the supplemented rats and then conducted F uh, gene analysis using FMetrix. So um, the uh, results uh, of the study showed that transcripts related to ER function, UPR, ERAT, or autophagy were not directly modulated by the short-chain fatty acids. Um, Directly, were not directly modulated by the ring cells in response to increasing short-chain fatty acid concentrations. So our answer to that question is no. Short-chain fatty acids, they do not directly modulate these mechanisms. However, uh, we, um, there was significant overlap amongst the genes regulated in islets of the rats that of the five study groups and ring cells cultured with short-chain fatty acids, which was more than 1,000. And these genes related to um, antioxidant defense uh, were expressed higher, concordant with increasing short-chain fatty acid levels. And this level paralleled uh, the high expression we saw in ACDLP uh, rats. As you can see in this, in this heat map on the right side of the slide, the same genes were also higher in the ACDLP group. Uh, going back to our pan pancreatic uh, tissue, we again localize the proteins on islet levels. And GSTA, uh, which stands for glutathione S, uh, transferase, that has a role in toxification process, it was found higher in ACDLP group. And this enzyme uh, participates in the toxification of reactive electrophilic compounds by catalyzing their conjugation to glutathione. And the next we um, stained NERV2, which is the transcription factor. It has an important role in detoxification and it activates many detoxifying and antioxidant defense genes, including GSTA, and it was highest in ACD-LP comparing to ACD. Uh, finally, we, uh, we stained KEEP1. It is a negative regulator of NERV2, and at this time, it, it was highest in the ACD group compared to ACDLP. To conclude and summarize, diabetes-free survival was best in ACDLP group um, um, compared to other groups. In ACDLP group, microbial diversity was improved, short-chain fat acid producing the taxol was enriched and plasma short-chain fat acid were increased. LP supplement promoted expression of 
ox oxidative defense responses and ERAD arm of UPR. And RIN studies support that induction of NERF2 and antioxidative defense responses can be attributed to increases in short-chain fatty acids. However, the shift between autophagy and ERAD absorbed between ACD and ACDLP islets cannot be directly attributed to increased short-chain fatty acids. Ongoing studies aim to define if ERAD induction is a secondary effect to improve antioxidative defense uh, or any other action or other, uh, the action of other bacterial metabolites or any other factors. So overall, this study showed that ER stress and oxidative stress responses can be modulated by diet and probiotics at the level of the beta cells in BB rats. And our ongoing studies aim to define how probiotics influence human diabetic progression. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much. This is fantastic. You really have a huge um, a group working together in this direction. It's um, it's really interesting. So in terms of, you know, if we're talking about how this translates into something that's meaningful uh, clinically, uh, the rat work specifically, you know, what are your next uh, steps? So, so you're muted. So you're on mute. So I guess I'll go. <laughs> That's my cue, right? Um, uh, so, well, as I mentioned, you know, we're basically using uh, two different probiotics in nuance uh, type ones. Really, what we're aiming to do there is to see if we can reduce systemic inflammation with the measures I discussed and other measures. Really, to to do the beta cell function, or you know, to address whether or not the beta cells are being impacted at all. The the metric we have there, the standard clinical measures, you know, insulin dose, A1C, and, and, you know, basically remission duration or honeymoon duration. So that's kind of where things are with that. Um, and of course, one of the things we're also looking at is uh, how is, how is immune self, you know, function altered, you know, in these, in these same studies. So we're following these patients over two years and collecting samples uh, at, I believe, six different time points. And, and so that's really kind of where we are right now with these studies is we have patients in follow-up um, and we're collecting samples and uh, I guess stay tuned. We'll see how, how much of what we see in the rat can actually be uh, recapitulated in, in these human studies. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I see you have collaborators with Carla Greenbaum at uh, the BRI Bill Hagopian at PNRI um, and uh, Thomas Vander Poulsen, Copenhagen, uh, John Mortis at UMass and uh, Ake Landmark at yeah. Lund. So this, are these all going to be uh, contributing samples or? Oh, no, actually our, our collaboration with, for example, John and Oka, mm -hmm. are, you know, the, the, the KRV studies were fostered, you know, uh, so the viral induction studies were fostered with, you know, John, because the, the UMass group has been long users of the, you know, the viral induced BB rat and, and Oka has been a proponent of the BB rat. And the, mm -hmm. In fact, our colony is our, our progeny of, of his rats. Um, and so our, our ongoing relationship with Carla and, 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 you know, some of the other more clinically oriented folks is, is, you know, through our analysis of, so this the plasma induced transcription work you know has uh, 
uh, dovetailed nicely with some of the things that TrialNet is doing. And so we've analyzed, yeah. we've done a number of ancillary studies with them. Yeah, well, I think it's great that um, the focus is, oh, there's a lot of interest, I guess uh, would be a good way to put it, on the microbiome now and its alterations uh, and dysfunction as um, children progress to type 1 diabetes. And uh, you guys have done some really excellent work here to contribute to the knowledge base. So it's really exciting times. And I can't wait to see what uh, next comes out of your collaborations. Oh, hold on one second. I do have one last question. Is the effect of gluten or casein have been reproducible in children who develop diabetes? Did you study the effect of probiotics on HLA susceptible children and study their effect on diabetes incidence? Oh, Can you okay. answer that let me, quickly, let me open that up. Is effective? So that's a great question from the standpoint, yes, we've done a gluten-free study. Um, and um, I don't know if you ever tried a gluten-free diet. Um, it's not too fun. And, uh, and so we've done this and the results have not been spectacular. I should, so what, one of the things I think we should have clarified from the start is, is the BB rat is gluten intolerant. Um, there's a lot of gluten intolerance in, um, well, I guess what about six times greater celiac rate in type one population compared to the general population. Um, but still it's only about 6% versus 1%. And so most type ones, um, don't get celiac though. Celiac is a problem in type one. And so to make the comparison between the BB, which is gluten intolerant, um, to, and, and, and then translate to humans is tougher. So what we did in humans is we did a gluten-free study, very much like our VSL3 study. Um, and we're still compiling those results, but the effect was pretty modest. Um, and we don't know if that's because we didn't have enough subjects in there that were actually that gluten intolerant. And so we didn't see much change. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the extent to which we've pursued that. Well, great question. Uh, saved by the bell here. And thanks for taking that last one and, and answering it. Appreciate it. Okay. If anyone is interested, they, you can reach out directly to um, Dr. Hessner or uh, Dr. Sargent. And uh, thank you again, everyone.